Part two, chapter three of Mushrooms on the Moor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Lillis. Mushrooms on the Moor by Frank W. Borum. Part two, chapter three. My wardrobe. Changing your mind is for all the world like changing your clothes. You may easily make a mistake, especially if the process is performed in the dark. And, as a matter of fact, a man is usually more or less in the dark at the moment in which he changes his mind. An absent-minded friend of mine went upstairs the other day to prepare for a social function. To the consternation of his unhappy wife, he came down again wearing his old gardening suit. A man may quite easily make a mistake. Before he enters upon the process of robing, he must be sure of three things. One, he must be quite clear that the clothes he proposes to doff are unsuitable. Two, he must be sure that his wardrobe contains more appropriate apparel. Three, and he must be certain that the folded garments that he takes from the drawer are actually those that he has made up his mind to wear. It is a good thing, similarly, to change one's mind, but the thing must be done very deliberately, and even with scientific precision, or a man may make himself perfectly ridiculous. Let me produce a pair of illustrations, one from Boswell, which is good, and one from the Bible, which is better. One. Dr. Samuel Johnson was a frequent visitor in the house of Mr. Richardson, the famous novelist. One day, whilst Johnson was there, Hogarth called. Hogarth soon started a discussion with Mr. Richardson as to the justice of the execution of Dr. Cameron. While he was talking, he perceived a person standing at the window in the room, shaking his head and rolling himself about in a strange, ridiculous manner. He concluded that he was an idiot, whom his relations had put under the care of Mr. Richardson as being a very good man. To his great surprise, however, this figure stalked forwards to where he and Mr. Richardson were sitting, and all at once took up the argument. He displayed such a power of eloquence that Hogarth looked at him with astonishment, and actually imagined that he was inspired. Thus far Boswell. 2. Paul was shipwrecked, as everyone knows, at Malta. He was gathering sticks for the fire when a viper, thawed by the warm flesh and fierce flame, fastened on his finger. When the natives saw the snake hanging on his hand, they regarded it as a judgment, and said that no doubt he was a murderer. But when they saw that he was none the worse for the bite, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Hogarth thought Johnson was a lunatic. He changed his mind and said he was inspired. The Maltese thought Paul was a murderer. They changed their minds and said he was a god. They were all wrong, and always wrong. It is the case of my poor absent-minded friend over again. It was quite clear that his clothes wanted changing, but he put on the wrong suit. It was evident that Hogarth's verdict on Johnson wanted revising, but he rushed from Scylla to Charbidus. It was manifest that the Maltese view of Paul needed correcting, but they swung like a pendulum from one ludicrous extreme to the opposite. In each case the hero reappears wearing the wrong clothes. In each case he only makes himself ridiculous. If my mind wants changing, I must be very cautious as to the way in which I do it. And, of course, a man must sometimes change both his clothes and his mind. His mind, at any rate. How can you go to a conjuring entertainment, for example, without changing your mind a hundred times in the course of the performance? For a second you think that the vanished billiard is here. Then in a trice you change your mind and conclude that it is there. First you believe that, appearances notwithstanding, the magician really has no hat in his hand. Then in a flash you change your mind, and you fancy he has two. You think for a moment that the clever trick is done in this way, and then you become certain that it is only done in that. I once witnessed in London a very clever artist, who walked up and down the stage, passing midway behind a screen. 
and as he reappeared on the other side after having been hidden from sight for only a fraction of a second he was differently dressed he stepped behind the screen a soldier and emerged a policeman he disappeared a huntsman he reappeared a clergyman he went a convict he became again a sailor he wore a score of uniforms in almost as many seconds i began by saying that changing your mind is for all the world like changing your clothes it is less tedious however i have no idea how my london friend managed to change his garments many times in a minute but many a magician has made me change my mind at a lightning pace yes many a magician for the universe is after all a kind of magic the wand of the wizard is at its wonderful work it is the highest type of legerdemain it is very weird and very wonderful a thing of marvel and mystery no man can sit down and gaze for five minutes with wide open eyes upon god's worlds without changing his mind at least five times the man who never changes his mind will soon discover to his shame that he is draped in intellectual rags and tatters i rather think that macaulay's illustration is as good as any a traveller he says in his essay on sir james mackintosh falls in with a berry which he has never before seen he tastes it and finds it sweet and refreshing he presses it and resolves to introduce it into his own country but in a few minutes he is taken violently sick he is convulsed he is at the point of death he of course changes his mind pronounces this delicious food a poison blames his own folly in tasting it and cautions his friends against it after a long and violent struggle he recovers and finds himself much exhausted by his sufferings but free from the chronic complaints which had been the torment of his life he then changes his mind again and pronounces this fruit a very powerful remedy which ought to be employed only in extreme cases and with great caution but which ought not to be absolutely excluded from the pharmacopoeia would it not be the height of absurdity to call such a man fickle and inconsistent because he had repeatedly altered his judgment of course it would a man cannot go all through life wearing the same suit of clothes for two reasons it will not always fit and it will wear out and in precisely the same way and for identically similar reasons a man must sometimes change his opinions it is refreshing to think of augustine carefully compiling a list of mistakes that had crept into his writings so that he might take every opportunity of repudiating and correcting them i never consult my copies of archbishop trench's great works on the parables and the miracles without glancing always with a glow of admiration at that splendid sentence with which the publisher's note concludes Quote, the author never allowed his books to be stereotyped in order that he might consistently improve them and permanence has only become possible now that this diligent hand can touch the work no more End quote. that always strikes me as being very fine but the thing must be done methodically let me not rush upstairs and change my clothes or my mind for the mere sake of making a change nor must i tumble into the first suit that i happen to find in either wardrobe when i reappear the change must command itself to the respect if not the admiration of my fellows i do not want men to laugh at my change as we have laughed at these maltese natives at old hogarth and my absent-minded friend i want to be quite sure that the clothes that i doff are the wrong clothes and the clothes that i don are the right ones mr gladstone once thought out very thoroughly this whole question as to how frequently and how radically a man may change his mental outfit without forfeiting the confidence of those who have come to value his judgments and as a result of that hard thinking the great man reached a half dozen very clear and very concise conclusions one he concluded that a change of front is very often not only permissible but creditable a change of mind he says quote, is a sign of life if you are alive you must change it is only the dead who remain the same i have changed my point of view on a score of subjects and my convictions as to many of them End quote. two 
he concluded that a great change involving a drastic social cleavage not unlike a change in religion should certainly occur not more than once in a lifetime three he concluded that a great and cataclysmic change should never be sudden or precipitate four he concluded that no change ought to be characterized by a contemptuous repudiation of old memories and old associations. 5. He concluded that no change ought to be regarded as final or worthy of implicit confidence if it involved the convert in temporal gain or worldly advantage. 6. And he concluded that any change, to command respect, must be frankly confessed and not be hooded, slurred over, or denied. All this is good as far as it goes, but even Mr. Gladstone must not be too hard on sudden and cataclysmic changes. What about Saul on the road to Damascus? What about Augustine that morning in his garden? What about Brother Lawrence on the dry tree? What about Stephen Grellet in the American forest? What about Luther on Pilate's staircase? What about Bunyan and Newton and Wesley and Spurgeon? What about the tales that Harold Begbie tells? And what about the work of General Booth? Professor James, in his Varieties of Religious Experience, has a good deal to say that would lead Mr. Gladstone to yet one more change of mind concerning the startling suddenness with which the greatest of all changes may be precipitated. And this, too, must be said. Every wise man has, locked away in his heart, a few treasures that he will never either give or sell or exchange. It is a mistake to suppose that all our opinions are open to revision. They are not. There are some things too sacred to always be open to scrutiny and investigation. No self-respecting man will spend his time inquiring as to his wife's probity and honor. He makes up his mind as to that when he marries her, and henceforth the question is settled. It is not open to review. He would feel insulted if an investigation were suggested. It is only the small things of life that we are eternally questioning. We are reverently restful and serenely silent about the biggest things of all. A man does not discuss his wife's virtue or his soul's salvation on the curbstone. The martyrs all went to their deaths with brave hearts and mourning faces because they were not prepared to reconsider or review the greatest decision they had ever made. There are some things on which no wise man will think of changing his mind, and he will decline to contemplate a change because he knows that his wardrobe holds no better garb. It is of no use doffing the robes of princes to don the rags of paupers. Eighty and six years have I served Christ, exclaimed the triumphant Polycarp, and he mounted the heavens in wreathing smoke and leaping flame rather than change his mind after so long and so lovely an experience. End of Part 3, Chapter 2